Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine as Russia strikes Dnipro and kills civilians across the country. Over the Atlantic, the US Senate has passed the Ukraine aid package plagued by delays. And we speak to Christopher Miller, the Financial Times' Ukraine correspondent, on Volodymyr Zelensky's military reshuffle. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 13th of February, one year and 353 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, economics reporter, Melissa Lawford, and our guest is the FT's Ukraine correspondent, Christopher Miller. I started by going through the latest news from Ukraine. Ukrainian experts have said that Russia has used a 3M22 Zircon hypersonic cruise missile for the first time since the start of the war. The anti-ship missile, described by Vladimir Putin as, quote, invincible, was allegedly deployed during February the 7th strikes that killed at least five people and injured 50. This story comes from the Kiev Independent. Scientists in Kiev said that pieces of missile debris indicate that it is indeed an M322 Zircon. This is evidenced by the markings on parts and fragments, the identification of components and parts, and the features of the relevant type of weapon. This comes from Oleksandr Ruvin, director of the Kiev Scientific Research Institute of Forensic Expertise, who also explained on Telegram that several fragments were engraved with the inscription 3L22, and that bolts on the steering mechanisms were marked with the number 26, both features of the Zircon missile. Moscow has previously claimed that missiles travel at nine times the speed of sound and can hit targets at a distance of 1,000 kilometres. But the researchers who examined the debris said that the weapon does not meet the tactical and technical characteristics claimed by Russia. Zooming out and looking across the whole of Ukraine, then, Russian shelling has killed five people today across the country. A 61-year-old woman was killed by a mine explosion following Russian shelling of the city of Vovchansk in the Kharkiv region. This comes from the local governor, Oleg Snyobuhov. Ms. Nibuhov posted on Telegram that two civilian men were also killed earlier in the morning when Russia shelled an agricultural enterprise in the village of Kirilivka, near the city of Kopyansk. Elsewhere, an 83-year-old woman was killed, quote, in the yard of her own house, end quote, when Russian forces bombarded her son. This comes from Alexandra Bukudin, the regional leader, who said that on social media. Authorities in the central Dnipropetrovsk region said that another 64-year-old man was killed in the, cent- in the city of Nikopol. Elsewhere, Russia launched a missile and drone strike on Dnipro this morning, which forced authorities to close schools and evacuate a hospital. The city of just under one million people came under attack from a missile and four groups of drones approaching from the south, east and north, Ukraine's air force said on Telegram. 
This fresh attack comes on top of previous reports that a power station in the region was severely damaged. Ukraine's main private energy company, Detec, said that one of its thermal power plants was severely damaged by shelling. The energy company did not report where the plant is located, but the Suspilny media outlet reported power outages in the city of Pavlovrad near Dnipro. Ukrainska Pravda reported that around 40,000 people were left without power. Meanwhile, there's been more fallout from the devastating Russian drone attack on an oil depot in Kharkiv on the 10th of February. That attack sparked a blaze that raged for three days, engulfing 15 homes, killing at least seven people, including a family with three children, and injuring a further 57. The depot struck stored over 3,800 metric tons of fuel, which has ended up polluting the surrounding land and spilling into the river that flows through Kharkiv. This comes from local media in the city. The oil spill is the latest environmental disaster caused by Russian aggression, which Denis Shmihal, the Prime Minister, last year estimated had caused more than 55 billion euros worth of damage since the start of the full-scale invasion. Moving into the occupied territories, the American think tank the Institute for the Study of War has reported that Russian forces have constructed a nearly 20-mile barricade made of old train carriages in eastern Ukraine, thought to be a defensive fortification designed to slow any Ukrainian counterattack. Dubbed online the Tsar Train, satellite images show thousands of freight cars placed in a chain between Olenivka and Volnohavka in the Donetsk region. The barricade is believed to be comprised of mainly rolling stock taken from other occupied territory in Ukraine. Russian forces reportedly began creating this makeshift offensive line in July, soon after Ukraine launched its counteroffensive, uh, according to a Ukrainian source cited by the ISW. The source suggested that Russian forces intended to use the train as a defensive line against future Ukrainian assaults before adding a caveat. The Russians could have assembled the train for other purposes as well. It's currently a little under four miles from the current front line. The context for this is of course the fact that Ukraine's advances in the region stalled in the autumn and its exhausted troops have been pushed back as Moscow starts to make inroads. Finally, before we go to Francis who's been looking at some of the diplomatic and political updates, the London-based International Institute for Strategic Studies has said in its annual report that Russia has lost more than 3,000 tanks during its invasion of Ukraine. To put this into context, the losses are equivalent to Russia's entire pre-war active inventory. But Russia does have sufficient poorer quality armoured vehicles in storage to supply replacements for years to come. The report said, quote, Moscow has been able to trade quality for quantity by pulling thousands of older tanks out of storage at a rate that may, at times, have reached 90 tanks per month. Russia's stored inventories mean Moscow, quote, could potentially sustain around three more years of heavy losses and replenish tanks from stocks, even if at a lower technical standard, irrespective of its ability to produce new equipment, it added. Singapore-based defence analyst Alexander Neal said it's an astounding figure. That's referring to the 3,000 tanks. Some of those could have been older tanks, so one of the big questions is how many of its most advanced tanks does it have left for any major future offensive? Well, those are the military updates for today. Francis Sternley, what have you been looking at? Thanks, David. I said last Friday that I felt Thursday was a historic wake-up call on three fronts, in the US, Ukraine and Russian contexts. And I think the remarks of Donald Trump over the weekend that suggested Moscow should attack NATO countries who do not pay their 2% of GDP will go down as another, not because it was necessarily shocking, but rather because of its being a blunt summation of the threat that many fear. Yes, it may have been just rhetoric, but words matter in this present context. 
The fallout is ongoing, with Lord Cameron, Britain's Foreign Secretary, condemning the comments as not sensible, which is pretty punchy in Diplo speak, joining a chorus of international voices furious over the former president's remarks. In what appeared to suggest Cameron was breaking ranks with the official government's position, a spokesman for Number 10 said Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, had faith the US would continue to be supportive of NATO allies no matter who wins the country's elections later this year. But Lord Cameron, who has previously been touted to one day lead the transatlantic military alliance, used stronger language. He said, I'm a strong supporter of NATO. It is what keeps us safe. And that is so essential in this world where we've seen Putin's terrible invasion of Ukraine. And actually, NATO this year has got stronger with Sweden and Finland joining. Of course, we want countries like us to spend 2%. But I think what was said was not a sensible approach. It's not all doom and gloom from the Ukrainian perspective in the American context, however. In breaking news in the past hour, the Senate has remarkably passed that $95.3 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, pushing ahead after months of difficult negotiations and those political divisions we've discussed so much within the Republican Party. Now, to stress, this is symbolic rather than merely pragmatic in the sense that it still has to go to the House of Representatives and it's there that we think there will be the biggest barriers for this to pass for all the reasons we've talked about. But this bill is not dead. It does live on. And to give you a flavour of just how strong the debate was that went on through the night in Congress, Mitt Romney, who, of course, we interviewed back in September, one of the most passionate voices for Ukraine in the Senate, said that this was quite possibly the most important vote that any of those senators president would ever vote on. So this was a big, big deal. And as we said last week, many, many people who've been following Washington for decades felt that this bill was effectively dead. But the fact that it is being kept alive suggests there may just be a way through the House of Representatives if enough people can rally around it. But as I say, there are many concerns that that won't be possible. This vote in the Senate came after a small group of Republicans who were opposed held the Senate floor throughout the night, using the final hours of debate to argue that the US should focus on its own problems rather than sending more money overseas. But 22 Republicans did decide to vote with nearly all the Democrats to pass the package, with supporters arguing that abandoning Ukraine would embolden Putin and threaten national security across the globe. More on all of that, as we have it, and on that vote on the other house. We just don't know the timescale on that yet, but I think it will be probably sooner rather than later within several days. Now, I mentioned former British Prime Minister David Cameron a moment ago, and whilst we are speaking of names being touted as possible future heads of NATO, the Kremlin has declared Estonia's Prime Minister Kaya Kallis as a wanted person, as the country's intelligence service warns of a conflict with Russia within the next decade. So Moscow's Interior Ministry database of wanted people listed her as wanted under the criminal code without naming the charges. The news comes as Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service, as I say, joined fellow European nations in raising the alarm over direct military confrontation with Russia in the years to come. The Financial Times has written an excellent summary of this story, and it's a great pleasure to have Christopher Miller with us in the studio. 
And they look at how, according to Estonian intelligence, Russia intends to double the number of its troops stationed along its border with the Baltic states and Finland as part of preparations for a potential conflict. So the director general of the Estonian service, whose analysis of Russia is closely followed in Western capitals for very obvious reasons, is the largest and latest European official to warn of Moscow's continued appetite for conflict beyond the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. While stressing that Russia is currently not willing to conduct any military actions towards NATO, he said, we see that the Russians, in their own thinking, are calculating that military conflict with NATO is possible in the next decade. Russians are planning to increase the military force along the Baltic states' border. We will highly likely see an increase of manpower, almost a doubling. We will see an increase in armed personnel carriers, tanks, artillery systems over the coming years. As previously discussed, whilst it is certainly true that a fully mobilised state is more inclined towards violence, I do think Moscow will be secretly pleased to read these kind of reports with their implicit implication that Russia would be capable of launching a conventional military attack on NATO. It would be total military suicide for them to do so. For one, they cannot defeat an army in a single country, let alone 31. But the danger would be in the so-called grey zones in Europe we've already discussed. They are not in NATO. And if I were a military bigwig, I would be thinking seriously about what can be done in those places to prevent any chance of hostile activity in the coming years. It remains one of the great unknowns of this war in Ukraine, whether a few hundred or a few thousand NATO peacekeeping troops in Kyiv, at the invitation of President Zelensky, say, would have been enough to stop this conflict. And perhaps we should be thinking proactively in those terms in some of these grey areas. But going back to the core story, an Estonian state secretary and a Lithuanian culture minister were also added to this Kremlin wanted list, with a Russian spokesman saying that two officials were declared so over the destruction of monuments to Soviet soldiers. Listeners will recall that Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania have been removing further Soviet-era memorials following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And for more on Russian-Soviet history, I'll be commenting on some sobering analysis by Timothy Snyder on Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson in my final thought. But just staying with Russia, briefly, a few more interesting stories. Yesterday, the French foreign disinformation watchdog announced it had detected preparations for a large disinformation campaign in France, Germany, Poland and other European countries, tied in part to the second anniversary of the invasion and to the elections in European Parliament in June. It said it uncovered a Russian network of 193 websites, which it codenames Portal Combat, Very good, whoever came up with that one. Most of these sites were created years ago and many were left dormant, but over 50 of them have been created since 2022. Current traffic to these sites is low, yet French authorities think they're ready to be activated aggressively as part of what one official calls a massive wave of Russian disinformation. It was no coincidence that the French made the announcement on the day that Macron hosted Donald Tusk, the new Polish prime minister in Paris. The pair met ahead of a get-together later that day of the foreign ministers of France, Germany and Poland, a grouping nicknamed the Weimar Triangle. Those are, of course, the main countries that this Russian campaign is, we believe, designed to target. 
For France, the detection of this latest destabilization effort comes after a series of campaigns that have been attributed to Moscow. Last November, the French Foreign Ministry denounced a Russian digital interference operation that spread photos of stars of David stenciled on walls in a neighbourhood of Paris. That was, we believe, designed to stir intercommunal tension in France shortly after the start of the Israel-Hamas conflict. And just lastly... An interesting story which reveals technological challenges faced by Russian soldiers, but also how sanctions may be being circumnavigated, circumnavigated, circumvented, forgive me. According to Ukraine's military spy agency, Russian forces are buying Starlink satellite internet terminals in Arab countries for use on the battlefield. These fresh allegations come after Elon Musk, who owns Starlink, of course, and the Kremlin, both denied claims that the satellite company had sold terminals to Russia. Listeners will know, of course, Starlink has been vital to Kyiv's battlefield communications, but Ukrainian officials are now saying that Russian forces are also increasingly reliant on it, hence why they're willing to shell out £1,700, about 200,000 rubles, for one each from these Arab nations. And I would suggest that the fact that Ukraine are going public with this is evidently a challenge to Elon Musk to try and stop the practice. So a lot going on, David, particularly within Russia today. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for all of that. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Christopher Miller from the FT, Ukraine correspondent uh, for many years. Chris, thank you so much for coming in. It's really an honour, a pleasure to meet you. There's so many questions we have really for you. But let's just look first, I think, at the story that's really dominated news in Ukraine over the past few weeks. Can you take us behind the scenes on the Zelensky-Zeluzhny saga? What were you hearing about it in the last few weeks? And what do you think how it ended shows us about the future for Ukraine's military and political top brass in 2024? Yeah, thanks for having me back, David. You know, the, the Zelensky's Zeluzhny uh, spat, if you will, you know, didn't begin just two or three weeks ago, but rather more than a year ago, right? There has been there have been rumors for months that Zelensky wanted a change in military leadership. Zelensky and Zeluzhny have had differences in how the military operation, Ukraine's military operation, that is, um, should be run. And Zelensky has been known to, in the past year, on several occasions, go around Zeluzhny to give orders to other commanders in the field, including uh, Oleksandr Sersky, who was until recently the ground forces commander. The other points of friction between Zeluzhny and Zelensky have been over Zeluzhny's growing popularity and Zelensky's falling popularity. Zelensky was, of course, elected back in 2019 with more than 70% of the vote, but his popularity has fallen pretty significantly, although it did shoot up in February of 2022 after the full-scale invasion to the astronomical figure, I think, of you know more than 80%, if not around 90% or so. But polls show him now pulling still high in the 60 percentile, but Zeluzhny being widely popular, not only among uh, Ukraine's civil society, the general populace, but also among the rank and file military. So that that point of friction, I think, just came to be too much for Zelensky. On top of that, there were rumblings late last year about the military's desire and Zeluzhny in particular's desire to mobilize hundreds of thousands of more troops. Ukraine it's no secret that Ukraine faces a very significant manpower problem. They've lost tens of thousands of troops, either uh, those who have either been killed or pretty seriously wounded. This is, uh, you know, a phase of the war now that is absolutely attritional. And Zelensky has not wanted to 
move forward with a significant mobilization or conscription of new troops for various reasons. One of them being it's a deeply unpopular move. And Zelensky, Zelensky thinks a lot about popularity. Also, Ukraine's civil society right now is wary of the war and also of being having their um, young men and in many cases older men being thrown into a fight that is, you know, in, in many ways just a, a meat grinder at the moment. So those two things, I think, became too much. And also with the failure of the counteroffensive that culminated in probably late September, I think you could say that's fair, um, was also you know a large disappointment to a civil society, to a general populace that was looking for hope that Ukraine would be more on a path toward victory right now rather than a defensive posture that they have more recently put up. So all of those things came to a head earlier this year. And myself and other correspondents in Kiev began hearing from our very well-placed sources within the general staff, the defense ministry, and Zelensky's own administration that Zelensky was now looking to replace Zaluzhny. And that brought us to just a couple of weeks ago when my, my, I and, and others began reporting this out. And I think, you know, the issue of that becoming public delayed Zelensky's decision to some degree, right? It took a couple of weeks for him finally to dismiss Zaluzhny. Um, and there are some other reasons for that. One being he could not get Sirsky at the time to agree to take over the role and was uh, Zelensky was shopping around for a potential other person to place in charge of the armed forces. Kirill Budanov of the military intelligence directorate was among them, but did not want the role and preferred to stay with the military intelligence unit. So that brings us to now, I think, and Zelensky tapping Sirsky, who agreed to be the new commander-in-chief of the armed forces. I think Zelensky is hoping that he will breathe new life into the military. Um, Zelensky has said that he's looking for a reset. And, you know, he's hoping that Sirsky is the guy to do that. And, of course, we can get into Sirsky himself and why that may or may not be the case. He's certainly much less popular than Zaluzhny among the rank-and-file military. But I'll stop there and let you, you know, jump in if you'd like to, you know, direct me in one way or another. No, absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. You've really, you've really spoken about it from, you know... A to Z there. Well, let's, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Sersky then, and maybe some broader points about Zelensky's new military leadership team, because it's not just uh, Sersky who's, who's a new face at the top table. But let's start with him. When we were reporting this last week, we had uh, Joe Barnes on, who'd been chatting some, to some Ukrainian soldiers, and one of them sent, I think Joe said, asked them, what do you make of the new commander-in-chief? And he got in reply um, three emojis of slabs of meat. Uh, the implication being that they were now meat for the meat grinder, the word that you used in your answer just then. I wanted to ask you then, what are your thoughts on Sersky? The the positive side, maybe the negative side? And also, what are you hearing from, from any soldiers you may be in contact with? Sure. So Sersky is a veteran military person. He's a, he's a career um, military person. He has been a commander now for years. He's been involved in uh, Ukraine's defense against Russian forces, not only since February of 2022, but since 2014, when the uh, first invasion began. He is known to have taken part in some of the most, some of the biggest and most decisive battles, not only recently in, in, in Bakhmut or the counteroffensive in Kharkiv, but also in the battle for Debaltseva back in January and February 2015. You know, he is someone who is viewed um, among his sort of elite military class and among other commanders as being effective. He has experience. 
but he is seen by a lot of the rank and file soldiers on the front line as being someone who does not take their lives into account to the extent that someone like General Zaluzhny did. That is probably why your colleague was speaking to a soldier who sent him emojis of slabs of meat. The nickname that many of the soldiers have given to Sirsky is the butcher because he has thrown soldiers into fights that many of those soldiers themselves believe were unwinnable. The best example of that is the Battle of, of Bakhmut, which lasted 10, 11 months over the course of 2022, culminating in May last year, 2023. And, you know, despite what the soldiers on the ground were seeing, experiencing, um, these are the men who were doing the actual fighting for months and, and seeing you know, no progress made. And the Russians continue to push through the city after pulverizing it and causing significant casualties on the Ukrainian side. Sirsky ordered them to continue the fight. Now, what I have heard from several soldiers, as well as military personnel within the general staff and also my contacts within the presidential administration, is that this was... A decision not only of, of Sirskis, who, who believed that spending significant resources in Bakhmut would ultimately see Russian forces decimated, but it was a political decision by Zelensky to, to keep Ukrainian brigades in Bakhmut for that very reason, thinking that doing so would exhaust Russian forces over the course of many months, attrit them to the extent that they would be unable to defend against a Ukrainian counteroffensive when they were willing, when they were prepared to launch that. Now, I would, having spoken with military analysts and Ukrainian soldiers, I would argue that decision, you know, did not play out very well and could be a pretty serious reason for Ukraine's counteroffensive actually being unsuccessful. Because what happened was Ukraine staying in the Battle of Bakhmut for so long without withdrawing its troops saw many of its most experienced and battle-hardened brigades significantly weakened to the point where the 93rd Brigade was unable to take part in the counteroffensive early on and had to completely reconstitute because it lost so many experienced fighters and soldiers and weaponry. So that's why they call Sirsky the butcher. They believe that they that he does not have their personal interest in mind. He's interested in, you know, pushing ahead at any cost. But there are those who think that is necessary right now. And and so Zelensky, maybe not thinking that, um, you know, the loss of life is necessary, but thinking that Sirsky could order a military reset, is hoping for just that by appointing him and shuffling around others within the general staff. So you mentioned a broader shakeup. One of the most notable names is Alexander Pavlyuk. He had been for many years the the lead commander of the Joint Operation Forces in eastern Ukraine pr- just prior to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, his name is notable for that reason and because He's been involved in the war for many, many years. He's viewed as intelligent. Um, you know, he's, again, a career commander. He's been in some difficult situations. He has the respect of the soldiers in the way that Sirsky doesn't. He's also someone who respects the chain of command and will take orders from, 
from Sirsky, from Zelensky, will carry them out to the best of his abilities. Many of the other people who were replaced and put into positions around Sirsky and Pavluk are also viewed in that way. They're viewed, if not a Zelensky, a close Zelensky ally, then someone who absolutely respects the chain of command is going to be seen as someone who will not go out on their own. You know, on, on many occasions, my understanding was that General Zaluzhny would try to argue with Zelensky that I don't think this is the best way to go about things. And they would have very serious differences of opinions on how the war should be prosecuted. And, you know, I think now what we're seeing is, in a way, Zelensky consolidating his power as supreme commander in chief of the armed forces and ensuring that there is this power vertical, which sees him ultimately making the decisions on the battlefield as well as the presidential administration politically. From a military perspective, then, what's your sense from people in Kiev and some of the analysts in terms of do they see this reshuffle, this reset as a broadly positive thing? Or is that really just an impossible thing to to say at the moment? If you follow Ukrainian social media, it's no secret. And it's very apparent, actually, that, you know, many Ukrainians are really upset about Zelensky's decision to dismiss Zaluzhny. Zaluzhny, like I said earlier, has been widely popular. He's known as the Iron General. He's had his face plastered on the front of Time magazine and many other newspapers. You know, he's a gregarious guy who himself actually uh, wanted to be a comedian like Zelensky himself. And he's just a very likable figure who is is known in some circles as, you know, the uh, Batka father. So he's this fatherly figure that is now that has now been removed and replaced with somebody who is deeply unpopular, as I mentioned before. And civil society is very nervous. Ukrainians are very nervous and facing a serious manpower issue, as I mentioned. And, you know, a lot of them don't feel as though the decision to put somebody like Sirsky in charge is going to inspire people to rush to recruitment centers. A lot of people have told me, Ukrainians that is, have told me, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm, I, I will absolutely defend Ukraine to the last man, but I'm not sure I'm willing to go and fight right now for General Sirsky. A lot of people who wanted to volunteer and fight have already done so. They did so in the early part of Russia's full-scale invasion in 2022 or in the immediate months after that. Right now, you know, these recruitment centers are not filling up. That's going to be a serious problem. And what I've heard is that Sirsky is not really the person who's going to inspire people to jump into the fight. Well, thank you. Let's move on a little bit then, Chris. Um, Francis gave us the news just then that the foreign aid bill has passed the Senate, will now head to the House of Representatives in Washington. What are you hearing from contacts and friends in Kiev about, you know, on this sort of on-running uh, issue, the saga that the US is seemingly unable to commit to the next tranche of aid for Ukraine. Ukrainians are trying to remain hopeful. The president's office is trying to remain hopeful. The defense ministry is trying to remain hopeful. But they don't, hope is not a strategy. And they don't really have a great strategy to convince the Americans or the skeptics within the Republican Party, in particular in the House, to push this, to push this through. I say they're hopeful because, you know, the Americans have taken the lead, really, over the last couple of years in supporting Ukraine in their fight against Russia. And so, you know, they, Ukrainians say, you know, it would be very dumb of them to stop now. They're so, we're so far into this, you know, the, the aid just has to continue. But they're under no illusions that it's a, that it's a guarantee. And 
they know how serious the situation is right now. I would use the word critical as have some of them, maybe not on the record, but certainly in our you know private conversations, they understand that American military assistance is critical right now. And this is going to be a decisive year. I'll, I'll paraphrase my, my colleague, Mike Kaufman, who's a great military analyst who's been covering Ukraine now you know, for, for quite a while, but very intensely the last couple of years of Russia's invasion, who said recently that you know if this... American military assistance stops. And already Ukrainians are having to ration munitions, weaponry on the front line and are unable to defend themselves, let alone attack, go on the attack, right? So if this American military assistance stops in the next weeks, months, or at any point this year, Ukraine will go from being able to defend itself and plan ahead for a potential counteroffensive in 2025 to possibly beginning to lose the war. Uh, so that's a really, that, that, that means it's a very serious, critical situation. And, and so they're watching uh, what is happening in Washington very closely. And not only that, but, you know, really doing everything and anything they can to convince Republicans there that this is necessary. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I'm happy now to hand over to my colleague, Francis. So I'm sure we'll have some further questions for you. Thanks, David. Brilliant to finally meet you, Christopher, after we've well, been reporting on your stories for so long. On that subject you were just talking about there, very interested in your perspective on what you've seen in terms of the mentality amongst the military, civic, cultural establishment in Kiev over your time there since the war began. In the context of Washington, do you, I quite often hear people say, if America withdraws, Ukraine will have no choice to very quickly go to the negotiating table. Do you get any sense from the people that you speak to that that is actually something that is understood? Or do you still sense something that seems very common with the Ukrainians that we speak to, that there's no talk about, even in the worst case scenario with regard to America, of immediately trying to get to the negotiating table? Negotiations or, you know, similar words, peace deal, those things are words that are not used very often by Ukrainians unless it's in the context of why is everybody talking about negotiating? It's up to us to decide when to negotiate and what kind of deal that should be. They see the fight as existential. And I would agree. I would say that this is an existential fight against an aggressor that is showing no signs of stopping. Putin has said as recently as I think the Tucker Carlson catastrophe, I'll call it, you know, that Russia's goals have not been met. They want Kiev subjugated They want the occupation to be permanent. They want more territory. So uh, negotiations, the Ukrainians would argue, could only be, well, well, could only begin when they are in a position, a strong enough position, to negotiate something with Russia that would be beneficial to Kiev, that would not be beneficial to Russia. Um, You know, so there's really no serious talks in Kiev about what a peace deal or negotiation would be, with the exception of the 10-point peace plan that Zelensky has laid out and his chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, um, you know, in meeting with dignitaries and heads of state who come through, they have said, this is our plan. We're going to stick to it. It's a very maximalist plan. It does not foresee the Russian occupation of Crimea, the regions of Kherson, um, Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Lugansk becoming Russian territory permanently. So Ukraine's goals remain also maximalist. And those align with what the general 
how the general populace feels and views this war as well. All of that said, I will mention, and this is, these are little anecdotes, obviously not representative of all of society, but I will mention them because I think it's interesting and I haven't heard these things before. And that is with the dismissal of Zaluzhny, the war being in the meat-grinding attritional state that it is in, and concern over manpower and the possibility of mass mobilization, for the first time in the last two years, I've heard more young men talk about how they're very worried about being mobilized, how they um, are considering ways in which they could potentially dodge the draft, and that they would be willing to hear out their government and President Zelensky if they were interested in negotiating some kind of deal with Russia, including potentially the temporary occupation of the territories that already are controlled by Moscow. Now, again, that is not a widespread opinion. Those things I've heard, you know, anecdotally, but I've heard them on several occasions from people who I think represent different segments of society. And I found that rather notable. So, you know, I think depending on how the situation progresses or digresses over the next few months, that could be a word negotiation that is spoken more, not only in Western circles, but in Ukraine. However, I don't think we're there yet. And all, you know, every, every sign points to Ukraine still wanting to continue to fight with or without American aid. That's why I asked that very question. It's really interesting hearing your perspective on it, because as I say, I hear so many people who just seem to think that in a sense, Ukraine is thinking purely in almost like a realpolitik sense that, OK, well, here's the, our reality now. We're going to have to confront that without realising, to your point, that Ukraine sees this as existential for its future. And that just is something I think needs to be more widely acknowledged amongst diplomats and political figures. You mentioned something very interesting there a moment ago, which is you don't see there being a grand strategy for winning around the Republicans in the United States. Now, it may well be that, that is beyond the Ukrainians' control for ideological reasons and the personalities involved, such as Mr. Trump. But I wonder whether you'd heard any attempt by Zelensky or the top brass to try and extend a hand to Donald Trump's camp. It has been sort of mooted as being, given that what we know about his personality, this is a man who can be charmed and won round. Have you heard any attempts like that? Or does it seem that they're not there because they don't want to upset mm-hmm. the Biden camp? Without revealing too many of my sources to the Telegraph newspaper, which I <laughs> respect and admire. Uh, I, I have heard that there, have, there has been outreach in Washington. It's, you know, it's no secret that the Ukrainian ambassador in Washington has been very active recently. She has absolutely met with Republicans in Congress, in the Senate, their advisors and aides, just about everyone she can to try to convince them that this is you know, a life and death situation, that withholding withholding military aid is counted not by the day, but by the number of lives lost every hour, every day, every week, right? There are others in Washington working on behalf of Zelensky's camp to try to convince the Republicans of this as well. Zelensky himself, you know, if he's been, if you've noticed, he's been not very critical of Donald Trump. He has been asked about Donald Trump in some of the interviews he's done with foreign media. And I forget who it was most recently who put that question to him. But the question was something about um, Trump's previous comments 
about ending the war in 24 hours. And Zelensky, rather than criticizing him, as he very well could, considering their relationship over the years and Trump's effort to muscle him into opening investigations into the Bidens, you know, he said, well, if he's got a plan, you know, I like plans. I'd love to see it. Like, share it with me. Tell me what it is. And who knows, maybe it would work. All right. I'm paraphrasing here. But he was, and I think to his credit, he's, despite everything, he's not criticized Trump explicitly. And that is because, you know, he, like many others, and like Trump himself, views Trump as a deal maker and is aware that Trump could return to office. And if that does happen next year after the November election, then Zelensky is going to have to work with him. And that that is something that's very much at the forefront of their minds right now. They know this is an election year. I think right now, in my understanding is that in, in Zelensky's office, they are discussing new communication strategies. They've realized that what has worked the past couple of years is not working right now. It was very easy in the first days and weeks of the invasion to convince the West to support them. It was evident that Ukraine needed their support, that uh, a handful of shoulder-fired missiles and javelins were not going to stop Russia, that more needed to be done, right? It was very easy to mobilize the West against Russia at that stage. But the last year has been much more difficult. And right now, obviously, we're at a, a critical moment. And so they are discussing how to move forward and convince particularly the Republicans in Congress to move this through immediately. And the challenge of a new narrative, a new message which can get cut through because of its novelty, which is, of course, as a fellow journalist, that is something that really matters. We've talked about that on the podcast previously. It was a question also we put to Simon Schuster, who, of course, knows Zelensky well from his time with him and said that he did think it was possible that Zelensky, if any man can adapt a message and change, it's surely somebody who is a former actor and comedian. So we'll have to see what message that takes. One final question from me, and that is, as you're somebody who has been in Ukraine for the duration of this of this conflict, and you will have seen an enormous amount of change in that time, but also from the perspective of a foreigner, an outsider, what are the biggest changes and shifts that you've seen in that time, negative or positive? Well, I've been in Ukraine now for 14 years, yes. so I've seen quite a few changes, a revolution, yes. a first invasion, the annexation of Crimea, full-scale invasion. I mean, just broadly speaking, the change that has occurred over the past decade plus has been huge and rather dramatic. From the Euromaidan uprising or revolution of dignity forward, we've seen Ukraine become increasingly more democratic, more European. I think the that can be difficult to describe, right? Um, I could talk about all of the reforms that have been put through and some that have failed, but really... The thing that I have seen is a very active civil society grow and become the volunteers who jumped into the fray in early 2022. The fundraisers who are, you know, raising millions and millions of dollars to fund these drone programs in Ukraine. There is a unity that I hope doesn't crack there have been some fractures of late, I think, just because everybody is now discussing whether or not the country is on the right path forward. But there has been a great unity for the last couple of years. And I think that is something that has, 
evolved since 2014, was not necessarily there prior to Russia's uh, first invasion in 2014. I think it's it can be difficult to pinpoint the things that have changed so much. It just feels like a much more evolved democratic society. I would just maybe underscore a few things that maybe folks in the West maybe get wrong or don't fully understand because corruption is a word that is tossed around frequently. And there are many, including, you know, the Elon Musks of the world, the Republicans who are skeptical of providing more aid to Ukraine, that Ukraine is a deeply corrupt country. And I don't think that's true. I see corruption in our own system in the United States. I see corruption within other systems, including democratic systems. Ukraine has come a long way. It has made a ton of progress and done so while defending itself at war. I also think that, it, you know, Ukraine's priorities have changed dramatically. It was a country where some people saw themselves as being European and separate from Moscow and moving further away from Russia's sphere of influence. Now it is overwhelmingly westernized and very much Ukrainians do view themselves as European and not a part of Russia's, you know, the Russian world. So those are, I think, very broadly speaking, the biggest changes and important ones, because that all impacts and affects and influences Zelensky's political decisions, uh, various policy decisions. Thank you so much, Chris, for answering all of our questions. We've come to the end of our time today, I think. So, Francis, I'll come to you for your final thought first, and then, of course, to Chris. Francis Durney. Well, thanks, David, and really great to chat to Chris today. In Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson last week, I commented on how much of it was dedicated to history or, more accurately, pseudo-history. And that's not a partisan statement, rather one of fact, as has been proven in many legal cases here in the United Kingdom, most notably against David Irving, whose works on the Third Reich were proven by Sir Richard Evans and others to have distorted the historical record for his own ends. So there is such a thing as meaningful history rooted in fact. And Professor Timothy Snyder, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, has written a superb piece on his substack, pulling apart the arguments Putin made in his speech with reference to history. Now, it's too rich for me to do justice to it here. I'll add a link in the description. But I'll just read a few extracts from it. Putin has read about various realms in the past, By calling them Russia, he claims their territories for the Russian Federation he rules today. Such nonsense brings war. On Putin's logic, leaders anywhere can make endless claims to territory based on various interpretations of the past. That undoes the entire international order, based as it is upon legal borders between sovereign states. In his conversation with Carlson, Putin focused on the 9th, 10th and 11th centuries. Moscow did not exist then. So even if we could perform the wishful time travel that Putin wants and turn the clock back to 988, it could not lead us to a country with a capital in Moscow. Most of Russia's present territory is in Siberia. Europeans did not control those Asian territories back then. On Putin's logic, Russia has no claim today to the territories from which it extracts its natural gas and oil. Other countries would, and Russia's national minorities would. Putin also calls the Soviet Union Russia and tells Carlson that the Soviet Union was just another name for that country. Here, he is simply wrong. Russia was a part of the Soviet Union. About half of the population were not Russians. Putin also talks about the Second World War as if it were a Russian ethnic struggle. But it was a Soviet struggle, and the Soviet peoples who suffered the most after the Jews were the Belarusians and the Ukrainians. What Putin has to say about the Second World War is that Hitler was right. 
For a decade now, Putin has been justifying the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The 1939 alliance between Stalin and Hitler then began the Second World War. His argument at the beginning was that the Soviet choice to join the Nazi Germany to the invasion of Poland was just the sort of thing everyone was doing. But it's hard to see how Hitler could have started his war had the Soviets simply held to the non-aggression pact they had earlier signed with Poland. Now Putin has taken a further step, saying that Poland had somehow both collaborated with Germany too much and simultaneously not collaborated enough and thereby brought the war on itself. Putin wants to say that Poland collaborated with Germany to distract from the basic fact that the Soviet Union entered the war as a German ally. Warsaw refused to fight on Berlin's side in 1939. Moscow agreed. Putin blames the war on Poland because his approach to borders and history in 2024 is like Hitler's in 1939. Putin's historical argument about Ukraine is consistent with Nazi propaganda about Poland, right down to the business about artificial states and people with no historical right to exist. So, Timothy Snyder there. I saw a few comments following the interview where people said, at least Putin's a leader who can talk about his country's history for hours. How many Western leaders can do that? I take that point about the historical illiteracy of many world leaders, but what Putin had to say was not history. It was propaganda, and I would say that's a very, very different thing. If you're interested in this subject, I made a video for the paper a few months ago called Putin's Top Three Lies from Ukraine to the Second World War, which breaks down some of these points in more detail. We'll add a link in the description, as we will to those who wish to sign up to watch and contribute live to our event at the US Embassy here in London this Thursday 15th. Many of the topics we talked about today will, of course, be discussed very much in detail there with people who are actually involved in important decisions. And we very much look forward to that. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Chris, let's come back to you then for your very final thought. OK, my final thought. So you guys get a lot more time to flesh this out. I just popped in here and now you're asking for my thoughts. I will bring up something that comes from a Ukrainian friend of mine who is not a journalist. We were having a conversation recently over a beer in Kiev and uh, they were saying they were, they were asking why is he was asking why america but i'll broaden it and say why a lot of U- ukrainians are curious why the western world is tired of ukraine and he was using the word fatigue because many ukrainians feel as though there is ukraine fatigue in the world and he was asking how could you guys be tired how could america be tired how could the west be tired when we're the ones doing the fighting all you have to do is provide us weapons which you have and money which you have a lot more of And we're the ones that are fighting. And many Ukrainians view this fight as not a Ukraine, a fight to to defend only Ukraine, but to defend Europe and democracy. They see the rise of authoritarians around the world, Putin among them, and the authoritarian leaders who are backing his war against Ukraine. Of course, I'm speaking about North Korea's leader and Iran and China. So my, my, my final thought would be, maybe a plea from my on behalf of my Ukrainian friends who would say that please don't be fatigued. You know, this is a war that they are fighting on our behalf in many ways. I do think that it is imperative that the West continues to support Ukraine and that perhaps many people in the West have not fully realized or come to the understanding yet of the stakes here and what happens if Ukraine loses this war. Um, It's not a war for Ukraine only to win or lose, but it is a war for us as well to win or lose. Well, thank you very much, Chris and Francis, for your thoughts and your reporting today. Coming up, 
Economics reporter Melissa Lawford looks at the crisis facing Russia's aviation industry as planes fall apart thanks to Western sanctions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Melissa, thank you so much for your time. There are deep, important problems at the heart of Russia's aviation industry. Can you tell us what you've seen? Yeah, well, so... A while ago, and I think I may have come on the podcast to talk about this a while ago, I did a story on oligarchs flying their private jets around the world. And back back then, a lot of the analysts I was talking to were saying, well, actually, it's going to be very interesting what happens with Russian planes, because even these oligarchs are going to stop being able to repair them because... One of the things that got sanctioned after the war began, the West put sanctions on the aerospace sector. So this means that if you have a Western-made plane, and basically all of them are, I mean, you think about Boeing or Airbus, the bulk of Russia's fleet is Western-made. And even if it's not a Western-made plane, a lot of the parts are Western-made. And so the sanctions, when it comes to Russia's aeroplane fleet did two, did three things. They blocked access to parts. They blocked ac- access to things like safety updates, you know, new technology updates. They also stopped Russian airlines from being able to fly to EU ports. And they also stopped Russian aeroplanes from being able to th- fly through EU airspace. I'll come on to that a bit later. But basically, there is a situation where if you are a Russian airline, you can't access new parts or maintenance or the technical expertise to be able to update your planes. And so the analyst I was talking to a while ago was saying, eventually, their planes are going to start falling apart. And I've been watching this for a while, waiting for the, for this to happen. And, and now it really does seem like it is starting to happen. And I think one of the most interesting things. Or, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. But one thing to say is this took longer than everyone was expecting. And part of the reason for that is, obviously, as is the case with pretty much everything in Russia, in the wake of sanctions, Russia found a workaround. And I can go into that in a bit more detail. But what is happening now is that workaround is no longer working. Well, let's go. Let's start there. What after the sanctions came in, what do they start doing? How are they able to patch together these aircraft to stop them malfunctioning? Well, there's a few routes. I mean, we've talked on here before about sort of middleman trade routes through Central Asia. And that is definitely part of it. They can just import parts or parts can get sent to Kazakhstan and then Russian companies send them across the border. But one thing, I spoke to this amazing aviation analyst called Andre Menchenin, who's based in Iceland. And he was saying he's speaking to people in Russia who are, what they do is there's a problem with their engine. So they send it to Turkey. Turkey buys the engine. Turkey 
Tur- like an, an airline in Turkey has all of these relationships set up with the Western suppliers. They can get it repaired. They get the maintenance done. It's fine. Then they sell it back to Russia. And everyone's very happy. Not least the Turkish airline because they are able to charge obscene amounts to do this. So the all-in cost of the repair is maybe triple what it was. And that matters partly because I, I really didn't realize this at all. But airlines actually have very small profit margins, so one or two percent. So there's not that much to be fiddling around with in the first place. On top of that, these Russian airlines have lost a load of business because they can no longer fly to certain airports. And also the routes that they can still fly, a lot of them have become a lot more expensive. So one fact that I really enjoyed, or I enjoy is maybe the wrong word, but it surprised me. You know, if you want to fly from Moscow to Havana, uh, normally you'd take a plane diagonally across Europe. They can no longer do that. So that plane has to go north before it can go south. And that adds 800 nautical miles to the trip, which is about two hours of travel time. And suddenly that route is no longer economical. So uh, although these sanctions took a long time, we are now starting to see the evidence that these airlines simply cannot afford to make the repayments. And, And you can see this in the number of accidents that are getting reported. Can we talk about the accidents then? What kind of things are going wrong and where? I mean, the first thing to say is the numbers. There's an amazing company, I think they're based in Germany, called the Jet Airliner Crash Data Evaluation Center, or JackDeck. And they've got figures. I mean, so in 2023, they identified 81 airline safety, airplane safety incidents in Russia, which is more than double the year before. In 2022, there were only 37. And if you look at the years prior to that, last year it was a total anomaly. And so you see it in the figures, but then you also just see it in the reports. I mean, we've had this flurry of emergency landings. Last September, a Ural Airlines flight plowed through a field of wheat in Siberia. An S7 had to make another emergency landing. An S7 operated flight had to make another emergency landing in Siberia because its engine started spurting flames. We've seen Russia Airlines making emergency landings, an Aeroflot flight saw its cabin filling with smoke. I mean, they're very dramatic. There haven't been, I don't think, in my research, I didn't come across any fatal ones yet. But I, I mean, if I was an airline passenger in Russia, I would be feeling very nervous right now. It feels like it's just a matter of time then if the, if these, if the, if the impact of these sanctions continues to bite. Definitely. And uh, I mean, one of the points that analysts are making, you know, I mean, you've got Aeroflot, which is the state owned airline. And maybe that's got more protection because it's got more government money behind it. But the smaller airlines operating with these small profit margins without some kind of massive flow of cash, they're going to be the ones feeling the most pain. But even then, I mean, we've seen S7, which is the largest private airline carrier in Russia. They've started, they've grounded some planes. And, and there's a lot of debate over what's really the cause. And the airline will say one thing. But I mean, one thing that is telling is Telegram in Russia, the blogosphere, is talking about this a lot. And they are furious. Well, they blame the EU. I mean, they they clearly identify sanctions as being the cause of these problems. And a lot of them are railing against the West for doing this, you know, calling it a crime against civilians. And there was one pro-government website that was even suggesting people should bring lawsuits against the EU for introducing these sanctions. 
It's an interesting ethical question because it does start crossing that line. I don't know. I mean, I think sanctions always feels like that clean, nice thing that we can do where we can do something without really doing very much. And here, I mean, I'm not, I mean, obviously we need to sanction Russia, but the impact could get quite nasty. Is this quite a good example then of sanctions being quite effective? I mean, we talk a lot on the podcast about the various workarounds the Russian state has found for all sorts of parts and materials that it needs for its war machine and for its economy that as you said earlier and it's the same for many other things it's no surprise that imports to kazakhstan and countries well let me just try that again imports to the central asian states have absolutely skyrocketed from european countries and what we think is happening is middlemen as they're going to the central asian states then they're being bought by russia and they that's how they're getting in rather than poland doing it or germany or whatever but yeah maybe this is a good example of sanctions having the impact that was desired Yes. I mean, I think that is the point whenever we talk about these uh, backhand routes. Russia does get the thing in the end, the end result. They do get it, but it costs more. And everything we do, we need to be squeezing Russia's war machine. I, I would say, though, that if there were to be a plane crash and Russian civilians died, that's not what sanctions are trying to do at all. I, that's, I, don't, I think that would be an unintended consequence and quite a grave one. Uh, I don't know what the solution is. What happens now they're looking forward? Is there any pros- prospect that, th- that Russia could continue to find workarounds? Or does it, as, I mean, from what you're saying, what it sounds as if is, these errors, these emergency landings are going to keep on increasing in number and then eventually one of them is going to go spectacularly wrong. I mean, looking at the figures, I can't really see how it would go any other way. And the analyst I was speaking to at Jack Duck was saying the numbers right now could even be higher because obviously, as we know, Russia is not a particularly transparent country and that there's probably already stuff going on underneath, beneath the radar that, that we don't have any visibility of. Yeah, I would say absolutely that is the risk. And uh, yeah, the squeeze is working, is, but it's complicated. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.